remember going to conventions and seeing you at conventions through the nineties and into the into early two thousands. I'm like, I think that's the guy <laughs> I saw in the lobby at Marvel. Like it was this whole. Hey, thanks for joining me. Hope everyone had a great week and a great weekend. Are you uh, doing the thing? Are you waging the war of creating whatever the thing is you set out to do? That seems to be the daily grind. <laughs> I wake up every day with the same intention, make the most out of the time that I have for the things that I'm trying to achieve without somebody paying me to do it. <laughs> and um, that's always a battle in its own right. So the rewrite for the book is going great. I've looked at the calendar and I have no idea how I'm going to complete it by early May, but I'm just going to keep my head down and blaze forward. Hopefully everything will work out in the end, but one can never tell. The hard part is that I I had to accept and relinquish working on the book over the weekends for the last couple of weeks in which I thought I would do, but there's just so many things that need to get done in the house and in life that I just don't have the bandwidth. It's really rough by the end of that weekend where I haven't worked on this huge task. And it kind of puts me in this weird zone, you know, that the, the voice in the, in the back of the head starts getting louder and louder. Then Monday comes and I sit down and I get to work and the voice kind of shuts up. But it's super unpleasant. I do not recommend it. I've been working hard on my practice of journaling and something that I've brought into it is this little written mantra of read more, think more, and write more. And I think that could be modified and applied to nearly anybody's creative process, whatever the thing is. When I thought about my process, I internalize my thinking way more than I felt that I did. So in this, I externalize my thinking as much as possible. Notebooks and voice memos and anything that I can use to see my ideas and my thoughts outside of the actual work of writing I've done it for years as a designer, but it was just this weird thing that I wasn't doing in my writing. This week's guest is Jamal Eagle. There's a, a really great story that happens in the middle of this conversation. I think I've known of Jamal for, geez, nearly 30 years. So it's not that he's new to my life, but we really hadn't had a relationship or a conversation before. But he's been uh, close in my thoughts, let me say, for a long time. And I'm really happy having finally sat down and talked with him. He certainly thinks a lot about what he has to do to be successful in his own way. And uh, it's pretty inspiring. So I hope you dig it as much as I did. This is me talking with Jamal Eagle. Look at that air on chair. Very yeah, well. Very two good. of them actually. Uh, I'm sitting in, in the uh, office version, and then I've actually had my wife 
This was a present from my wife. Ooh, like I want to say, fifteen years ago. Is literally the best chair that I've ever owned in my entire life. Yeah. The the uh, anytime I would get a job, at like different design firms or whatever companies over the years, you know. I would always gauge the quality of my tenure, you know, my tenure in like what chair I had. Uh, like you walk in, they're like, here you go. And then it's like a crappy chair. Oh, yeah. This is not going to be good. Yeah. Especially if you're going to be, if you're going to be sitting on your butt, you know, at a drafting table or a computer or whatever for, you know, eight, nine, 10, 12 hours every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You got to be comfortable. You got to, it's got to be like a, yeah, it's got to be a thing. And I I did not realize that before. I didn't realize how important that was before. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's along with, along with, you know, a lot of other things that my wife introduced into my life at the time. <laughs> <laughs> like the concept of actually going on vacation. That oh. Was... <laughs> oh, yeah. No, totally. Yeah, totally. Like I think I remember like what my my wife probably then girlfriend was like Hey, we should go somewhere. I'm like, what do you mean? You know, yeah. like oh, I didn't yeah. understand the concept of like, oh, like we can leave here, we can go somewhere. Oh no, we... especially for me, because if it wasn't for like a convention, I really did not travel. Uh-huh. I mean, for not for certainly not for pleasure, and certainly not, you know, to go right. on a vacation somewhere. And my wife is French, and my wife is super French. Like, yeah. And vacation is very, very important. Like she gets cranky. If she doesn't get yeah. to go away for a while so yeah although especially especially if you're not going anywhere in august oh yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah no well august august we're actually back we're actually going to france to visit the family in for three weeks in the end of june through july so because oh. mostly because exactly that fact my in-laws are like off to switzerland so mm -hmm. it really doesn't like make any sense for us to to be there any longer and then you know my my kid is you know going to be 15 at that point and they want to try and do something like get like a job or do something this mm -hmm. summer you know and you know us dragging them off to visit you know their their grandparents in paris of all places <laughs> i know oh. how, how, how dreadful is that right it's 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 a thing you know it, uh -huh. honestly alex it's a thing with with us because you know, Rio is so blasé about that kind of thing. Like, they've sure. been traveling internationally since they were a toddler. So it's like, it's nothing to them. Yeah. It's, see, or it feels like it. Although they are excited because we were, we were talking about taking like a little side trip to Amsterdam this time for a couple of days. So they seem to be like really into that something idea. different. Something, something different. New. Something different. But there's also like there's also the other part of it, which is they'll say because you know, they were so young when they went to some of these places, they don't really remember. Mm -hmm. So they'll say, "I'd love to go to England one day." You've been to England, but <laughs> I was two. I was like, "Okay, fine. I, yeah. I, I, I get fair. it. I get it. It's fair. I get that. I, I understand. Absolutely. I understand. So." <laughs> Some of the greatest gifts people can give in life, especially to their children, is travel. Oh, yeah. To be able to see anything that is outside of what your normal is, is going to just, 
the value pays off so much down the road. Oh no, absolutely. I mean, this, this, you know, I, it's funny because I did not grow up with that sort of advantage. Like I didn't, I didn't even leave the country really until I was like 21 and that was just Mm -hmm. in Canada. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So it's, it's it's different. Yeah, it's different, you know, but it's not, you know, different. And, you know, my kid has been like traveled to France for like, you know, almost every summer for like the, you know, between like the ages of four and 11, you know, and has been to England, went to Japan for three weeks, you know, Mm -hmm. that has, has had the opportunity to see things that I did not get to see until I was an adult. And, yeah. you know, and they have, you know, and even more opportunities coming up, I, I hope, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're planning for them to go to Costa Rica next year, you know, it, it's, you know, it's a school trip thing, but, you know, again, it's an opportunity, you know, for yeah. them to, to travel and to travel without us, you know, sure. kind of- yeah. Here, here's some agency. <laughs> grow, grow, become independent. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's it's interesting, and yeah, and it's. I mean, going back to the concept of allowing yourself to be able to to travel, to take a holiday, mm-hmm. it is is a really interesting thing because it takes a lot of planning and preparation and yeah, hard absolutely. work to be able to afford that, and. You know, and I'm I'm trying to draw a metaphor here with the idea that, you know, we we wrap a lot of that into our work experience. So people in the comic industry certainly wrap it into their work experience. Oh, right. I get to go to location X because I'm gonna I'm a guest at this convention. Right, exactly. And you know, and it's like this kind of gaining of perspective in your life. And I'm and I'm making gonna make a hash of this, but it's also like going back to the chair. And I'm thinking about the chair in the sense that I recall probably spending every, I don't know, like every six months through the 90s trying to find the right comfortable drawing position. Mm. Is, you know, is, how high is my chair? How much angle is my board right, table? Exactly, like, it, was, exactly. it was this constant hunt. And, and, and I just think it's just that it's that hunt for balance in everything that we have in life and some people are really good at just finding it right away some people are good at ignoring it and just mm-hmm. grinding it out and i think most you know. of, i think most of us for the for the majority of our lives probably spend more time doing the latter than the former like really yeah. just kind of like you know accepting and kind mm-hmm. of grinding through instead of like really and it's not even really a time issue, I think. I think it's more of an, an effort. So putting in yeah. the extra effort to do things, putting in the extra effort to to make changes in your life, to do things that enrich you as a person, because we're so programmed in a few different ways. We're either programmed as creatives, we are programmed to make what we do creatively as so much part of our our day-to-day existence Mm, yeah yeah we 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 are almost programmed from the time that 
we get into the arts, especially that your identity is artist, your identity is writer, your identity is actor, dancer, whatever it is, that we forget that you can't have an identity outside of that. Yep. And we're so locked into that idea. So being able to have, going back to the chair and going back to like the idea of going on vacation and all this other stuff, the idea of doing things for fun, doing mm-hmm. things to better yourself, to enrich your soul, whatever that may be, whatever minor little thing, we, we have a tendency to push that aside. In order to, because the effort to do it sometimes, it's just, it's more than we want to exert. Yeah. You know, on top of everything else, on top of like being, you know, having to raise families and make a living, you know, just sustain ourselves from day to day. Yeah. What about if, what about if the effort is, is moot? What if you put in the effort and it doesn't work? So then it's like, I've just wasted this time. Right. But I don't know if it's ever really a a waste of time. No, no, it's not. But the perception, the fear of like, so it's like, you know, it ties in with, you know, your idea about the, our sort of our self, self image, Mm -hmm. you know, we go, okay, well, I'm an artist or I'm a a pencil or let's get it really like didactic. Right. right, I'm a penciler. Right. Like you don't even see yourself as. I could probably color that job mm-hmm. or whatever the other project is. You're like, no, I'm a, I'm a penciler. Right. And you've kind of, but like to take the risk and say, all right, maybe I will be a pen, a, a colorist mm-hmm. on a project or whatever the thing, even if it's not your own work, right. You can take a risk, take a, take a swing at it. You're going to gain something. But I think we do have a lot of fear about extending ourselves. That's true. In an area that's, that's uncomfortable. That's very, very true. And I think it really, takes uh the kind of you know come to jesus moment with yourself in that regard Mm. as well to be able to have a serious like a serious conversation with yourself and say there are all these things that i either want to learn or i knew how to do at one point that i put aside to concentrate on this one thing because this was the one thing that at the time was making me money Mm-hmm. And it really, you really have to remove yourself from the situation in order to sort of come back around to the idea that you could do all of these other things as well. Mm-hmm. And that you could, what you don't already know, you're going to take the time to learn. And it's going to be a process. It's going to be a long process. But it is going to work itself out eventually. And I think that's true with everything in you know, there is a reason that I've decided to do this now. And there is a goal that I'm I'm going for, you know, um, and it's important. Yeah. And, you know, and I had to make it a priority along with everything else. Sure, right, right. <laughs> Add it to the list of priorities, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. What? What you said something really interesting about the about this idea that you know there, there's there's more to the things that you do and mm-hmm. and you know you know being paraphrasing here you know trusting in the process and all these type right. things like 
when do you feel, because I know like, listen, we make tons of mistakes and that's how we learn. But when do you kind of feel that you looked at yourself with a little objectivity in your career and said, hey, I need to do this, even though it's not going to be fun you know, or this is gonna be a lot more work than I anticipated. But what do you can you remember when that happened? I I can honestly say it was probably towards the end of uh, my exclusive at DC. Okay. You know, um, I had been there. I'd been working there, you know, since the nineties, off and on, and I had been working on contract there since two thousand seven. So this would have been. 20 the end of the tail end of 2010 the beginning of 2011 and mm-hmm. um i this is i left supergirl at this point and was just sort of kind of floating around and doing little things here and there you know trying to i don't know it, it was a weird period because I was getting very, very frustrated with the, with the, not, with the work, but not from a creative standpoint, but how I was sort of approaching things at that point in my life. Okay. And I was, I was kind of miserable, actually. Um... You know, I was overweight. I wasn't sleeping well. I was constantly angry. I just, I felt like I was spinning my wheels. And I wanted to do more. I wanted to write. I -hmm. wanted to do covers. I wanted the opportunity to do things for creative services. You know, I wanted to be more than I had been mm. at that point because I'd been primarily working as a tensor at DC for most of my career. And I saw other people at the company, my peers, getting opportunities that, you know, I wish that I had been considered for. Sure. Yeah. And that that makes it very, very, it made it very, very difficult for me. And because I was becoming so frustrated with my perceived, my perceived position at DC, uh, because there were people at the company who did not view me as, you know, a, did not consider me to be a, you know, a quote unquote superstar talent. Right. 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 Yeah. You know, in, in spite of, you know, at one point, you know, Supergirl outselling both Superman and action. Mm. Um, or, you know, everything that I had done at that point to, you know, frankly, you know, save a few people's asses on occasion. Yeah. Sure. 
but I was not perceived as being someone I did you know the the term workhorse was thrown around a lot yeah sure <laughs> I, 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 I totally get it and you can probably list a dozen easily list dozen people in your head yeah who cut that oh mark okay these are the people who we grew up reading their comic mm-hmm. books I, I totally get it, man. I mean, I, I totally understand that place. Yeah. yeah. So I, you know, so I wanted to write, I pitched things that, you know, but I always pitched things to, it's a, it's a series that I knew were on its last legs. <laughs> okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, to kind of like sneak in, you know? Yeah. You want to John Elway that yeah, thing, exactly. just get the ball up exactly, there. Exactly. Exactly. So, and it just it never nothing ever got approved, and you know I was just I was just frustrated, and I you know my 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 assistant at the time, you know God love him, um, he's actually here at the house yesterday we were talking, and uh, <laughs> you know, he was like, man, you were so miserable back then, like you. Mm-hmm. You know, just uh, when you when you see yourself as I see myself as a storyteller more than anything else. Hmm. And when you have all these stories in your head, and I don't think I'm a better writer than anybody else. I don't think I'm a you know a better artist than anybody else. I I think that if I have a strength at all in comics is that I am a damn good storyteller. Right. That, you know, people, there are very few people who visualize panel to panel continuity the way that I do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably always been my, my greatest strength. But I think a lot of that also comes from you know, my background from, you know, having worked in advertising and having done marketing and having worked in television, you know, done animation, you know, having had this like varied skill set, having done copywriting, having, you know, having done like attempting to do screenwriting over the years. And, you know, I just felt like I had reached a certain point at DC and at the time it wasn't my profile was not going to become any higher there and I knew I think deep down I that's when I knew like my my time at least emotionally was coming to an end and that's when I made the decision that I really need to pick up those things that I had dropped in order to try to become the best penciler at DC comics, which was a lofty goal. And there are a lot of very talented people who can make that claim. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And think it's, it's the job. It's, it's so tough because providing a value in getting a, a book well cra- a well crafted book 
delivered mm-hmm. on time is an amazing thing. And an editor will almost always, you know, go, that's what I need. Right. They go, I need this. But they get pressures, they get sales mm-hmm. pressures, they get all these external pressures. And there's and not to mention, there's an onslaught of people saying, hey, I'm the next big thing. For right. You. So they're constantly having to kind of negotiate this space, you know, in this in this regard. And it's really tough to not be the pretty young thing. Mm-hmm. And that's a, such a hard place to, to recognize. No, no. I, I, and I, I got that. And I, yeah. I understand that. And, you know, I, I think part of my frustration at the time really wasn't like, I wanted, you know, I wanted to be able to do cool things. And but you're, so what about searching for satisfaction? So like, here's the thing. We search for satisfaction in life mm-hmm. often. And, And I'm like thinking about what you're saying. I'm going, oh, wait a minute. This is the difference between sort of internal and external satisfaction. The internal satisfaction is doing the thing that makes you feel good for the thing that you've Mm -hmm. done. While the external one is being known as the hottest penciler for the company. You know, like there's, there are two very different things. They They don't have to be completely different because you could be, you could do both. But the point being is that you're, you know, we sit around and we bust our butts for you know those twelve mm-hmm. hour days, trying to be that person, you know, to be, you know, someone says you're Art Adams, you know what I right, mean, like right. that kind of like recognition, right. and it's like, and it's really tough if that's the sort of this even unwritten goal in your mind. True, it, it's very true, and I. Th- and I think the way that I have managed to get around that, that sort of idea in my head since that point, you know, so because mm-hmm. we're talking, you know, a decade removed, mm-hmm. is that I have one hard and fast rule when it comes to picking projects, which is I only pick things that I think are going to be fun that are weird and different and are just going to be the fuel that just gets me going. And it has, it has honestly served me well. Uh, Like the last decade or so I've just had fun. Yeah. Yeah. You know, some, and it's not, has nothing to do with money has nothing to do with position. I just, I like the stuff that I'm working on. <laughs> yeah. I like, I genuinely have fun. You know, that's the most important thing. And because I'm having fun, I feel like I'm producing the best work that I've ever produced. I, I think that's a, I think you're correct. Um, not just specifically you, but I think that mindset is the way, the only way to do oh, yeah. it. I, I think it, it's like, you know, like, I guess, you know, like a career is so much like dating, mm-hmm. you know, that like you, you know, the old move for comics was, you know, go spend some time with DC right. then show a little leg with Marvel <laughs> and then go over there and then have DC go, hey, hey, honey, I want you back, you know, and then you, you do this whole kind right. of game the back and forth dance between but, the two. Right. And the projects are like a, are like dating. So like because often the assigned projects you get from an editor hey we got this thing for you 
that's a blind date. Right. You really have no idea what you're getting right. into. You're like, oh, okay, I, I think I like that writer, or I never heard of this writer, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you're like, I got to work, I got to eat. Right. So sure. But then it's like, hey, who is that over there? That person looks really interesting. Or I had a great time talking with that person. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'd like to go out to dinner with right. me. And then you have like this relationship that develops, which is that project that is interesting and fun and, you know, and get your mind working at all different levels. Oh, yeah. no, absolutely. But I think, you know, in terms of like, you know, working for a bigger, for like a DC or Marvel or, you know, Dark Horse, you know, as, as or Boom Studio, because they do more licensed properties. When you're, when you're doing things on that level, which is essentially brand management. I mean, that's a lot of what, yeah, what totally. It's, it's brand management. So you are a link in the chain of a much larger tapestry and a much larger story. And even when you're, you know, when you're when you're dating, when you're, when you're like, you know, when you're dating and you get on a a regular book, there's always that courtship period in mm-hmm. the beginning. What you're still trying to figure out, at least I know for me, I'm still trying to figure out within the first couple of issues how I'm going to tell my version of that character's tale, which is different than, you know, working on something like The Wrong Earth or Deadly Datsun or Black where or Molly Danger, where it's primarily me. Like I'm I am the driver. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not picking up the baton from somebody else and trying to find my way through, you know, the myriad of artists and writers who've come sure. before me. You know, it, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's a completely different thing. So like when I was on Supergirl, it, it literally probably took me two issues to really figure out all right, this is my version of Kara. This this is this mm. is the way that I wanted to pick this story. This is the way that I want to show these characters. And you know, and that I think that's always true when you're coming on to a new title, especially of, of something that's long run. You're still, you know, you're always trying to figure out what is your take on mm-hmm. these long-standing brands. So, you know, there's the courtship period. But, you know, when you first get into the business, you're just dating around. You're on a book mm-hmm. for like one, two issues, maybe a couple of pages here and there. You know, <laughs> totally. you know, you're, you're like, you don't even, you know, you might get a peck on the cheek, you know, but right. you, you're not, you know, holding hands in the back of the movie theater. You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's a completely different animal. You know, when you're, when you're, totally. when you're kind of the, the mercenary aspect of being a freelancer at that point is more about like, I need to keep paying my bills. I don't care what they give me as long as they give me something. Mm-hmm. And then you get to a point where you've got, you know, longstanding runs on your books and you've been around mm-hmm. for and you have stories that you want to tell and you have to take those opportunities to tell those stories and be able to you know have a long-standing relationship with your best girl or guy or whatever (laughs) sure yeah 
Totally. Yeah, it's, you know, and I am really fortunate to get to have these really rich conversations with, with creators. And it, it forces me to really stare back at all these things that I wasn't paying attention right. to. You know, when I hear people talk about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, why did I not think, why did I not recognize this? Why didn't I act? You know, I mean, you know, I mean, and it doesn't drive my day, you know, but it it allows me to kind of face it because I think it's the difference between accepting what others want from you versus what you want for yourself. Right. right. Absolutely. Well, especially, especially when you first get into the business, because a lot of times uh, an editor or a publisher wants to be able to mold a young artist into what they need them to be. Mm -hmm. As opposed to exploiting, for lack of a better word, who the the strengths of the artists that they are hiring, they try mm -hmm. to change them into what they need them to be at the time. And yeah, you know, a young artist isn't always, you know, cognizant of that idea. Um, I think it's a little bit different now. I I know. You know, looking at my own students' work and seeing, in some cases, how fully formed they already are, you know, like 18, 19 years old, mm -hmm. which is amazing to me. It, it really is. Because um, I don't know if I necessarily understood what it was that I was completely looking for in my own work at that age. You know, I was, you know, kind of still emulating the people that I grew up with. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think they have, I think there's a, there's a greater, I mean, I call it, I, I, it's the feedback mm -hmm. loop. This feedback loop is so, it's so much larger, faster right. and stronger yeah. than it was when we were, you know, growing up you know, in the eighties, yeah. you know, we our ability to, you know, keep tabs on specific artists and series was not nearly as prevalent oh, no, as, as it is now. Our, our, my, up until probably like 87, like the most I had maybe seen outside of like the newsstand was occasionally stumbling across a copy of the Comic Buyer's Guide, you know? <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like the Bible. <laughs> what is this thing? <laughs> what does VF mean? What is G? I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was. It, it was. It was like. Yeah. I mean, it was really like finding something out of Indiana oh, yeah. Jones because you could really. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, it was super exciting. Absolutely. Where did you? Where did you I grow, grew up? up in I uh, grew up in okay. Um, I still live in Brooklyn. Um, I, I actually came back. <laughs> I, I left and came back, <laughs> but okay. you know, ended up back in Brooklyn. Actually, not that far from where I grew up. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I, I grew up in Brooklyn. I went to school here. I went to the High School of Art and Design, Art Students League, mm -hmm. School of Visual Arts. You know, did the whole like New York, you know, art, uh, art, uh, you know, comic art, you know, yeah. to, you know, to, you know, grand tour. Of, of schools sure <laughs> so you're a few years behind yeah. me but like you you've worked with people who you know went to school 
just a little bit after me. So like people like uh, yeah. Soto, you, you know, you work with Chris and, you know, so I, I the guys like Kevin um, McCarthy and Brett Lewis were and John Paul, like all those guys went to SBA when I right. went to SBA. So there's, they were like a few years behind one or two. And it was just this kind of trail off. And so we, you know, let's see, this pans out. I have a memory of meeting you. Okay. In I'm gonna say it was ninety three, ninety four. Okay. And it was it and it was in the lobby of Marvel Comics. It's entirely possible. Was I wearing a black baseball okay. cap and uh <laughs> leather jacket? <laughs> possible. So what what so I was I was going to the office to I to go talk to my editor, drop off pages. Don't really remember the reason why right. I was going. My buddy who I went to art school with was mm-hmm. with me. And I and I was like, hey, come on along. Because I, I was encouraging him to kind of build relationships and hopefully he would be a right. penciler, you know, with his for his dream. And so we're in the lobby and I'm talking to the uh, receptionist and she calls back to Marie Javens. And so Kevin Summers comes out to get me in the lobby. And my buddy's coming with me. But meanwhile, my buddy had struck up a conversation with the, this young man sitting in a chair or on the, on the right. couch, just talking. And so Kevin's like, hey, come on. And I'm like, cool. And I'm like, hey, Hunter. So go walking right. off. Sorry, said his name. Walking oh, down the exactly hallway. You're and, talking I, about now. and I'm walking down the hallway and Kevin goes, I know your friend's coming today, but who's the other guy? And I'm like, what do you mean? And I turn around and Hunter's got this young guy with him just walking and talking. And I get to the I get to the Marie's office and I thinking, okay, well, this guy had somewhere to go to. So he'll go off and go do his thing. And then Marie goes, and then like like he's standing there with this young guy, and Marie goes, um, uh, who who? And I'm like, oh, okay, hold on. And I said, hey, Hunter, <laughs> like. I don't, and I asked the guy, I'm like, I'm like, who are you here? And you're not you, but whoever it was said like, Hey, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I'm just here to see somebody. And I said, Oh, well, I'm here for an appointment, like with my editor. So I can't actually like, you know, and he was like, Oh, okay. Like that is, but I I think really in my memory, my friend's like, all right, cool. And he left with this young guy. And I was like, I was like, Oh, but I remember going to conventions and seeing you at conventions through the nineties and into the early, into early 2000s i'm like i think that's the guy i saw in the lobby at marvel like it was this whole so that's that was the very sort of odd first time i may have encountered so, you okay so i know i remember that not even remind me i remember that and what here's what happened was i was actually waiting for joey cavalieri there you go so hunter who uh-huh like, because I had actually met Hunter previously, so okay. So when you guys walk in, I was like, "Oh, I might as well just go in and find Joey." <laughs> Makes complete sense <laughs> to me. I'm here. I might as well go find. Him. Sure. Oh my god, that's so fun! That is so funny. I love this. I, 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 I'm not joking, Jamal. Oh. This has been thirty oh. years. In my mind, of I'm like, I think I met that guy. So there you go. Oh yeah, I. I hope I wasn't too much no, of an no, asshole. No, That's it, all no, I have it, to say. It, it, 
wasn't it, it wasn't that and I will this is not this is something that you know, when I say this to you, I'm sure you will completely I'm sure that you will understand. So I I am So I am what they refer to as a high functioning autistic. Yeah, okay. So, and especially back then, I was not diagnosed as a high functioning autistic. So boundaries Mm -hmm. were very difficult for me to gauge (laughs) in situations. So, you know, I have a very distinct memory of one of the first uh, Great Eastern conventions that I went to. And Dark Mm -hmm. Horse was set up there. And I was like, you know, young and looking for work. This was what, probably around the same time, like 1993. It's at the Javits Center. And Randy Stradley was going to do portfolio reviews. And I ended up following Randy around until he was heading to the Dark Horse booth for like a good 10 minutes. (laughs) It's, and he's like he's talking Rand, you know randy's huge i'm 510 randy is like six four six five something you know something like that he is not, no, small. not small yeah and he turns around he looks at me he's like i'll be there soon <laughs> and i was just like oh okay but i didn't at the time i didn't think of it that way like it's like Sure. Like you Yeah. You had a task. You were just focused on the task. (laughs) Oh man, that is that is fantastic. It's 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 something that I had to come to realize later in life. It it wasn't something like I when I was when I was diagnosed as a kid, they didn't call it autism; they called it hyperactive disorder. Sure. So, I did not know that's what that was, and I did not, you know. Mm-hmm. And when I got the diagnosis about my autism a few years ago, it was like a light bulb moment. Just like, oh, <laughs> oh, oh, that explains a lot, doesn't it? Uh, oh yeah. yeah okay so <laughs> yeah no i mean it and it makes it makes total sense but i also like i it makes sense in your and i'm looking at it from your perspective and you're like i'm here yes, for a purpose exactly. i'm like i'm not because like you know if you know if you know soto his secret not his secret but his um like he broke into marvel with a friend like on a like on an right. evening and it wasn't a, it wasn't like a malicious thing they just made their way into the building and were kind of like pinched you know but that was how he first you know got right, into marvel right. um but you know so i mean I, you know so yours is less uh you know uh, than his. oh yeah so Finding your voice, finding your right. thing, it's not an easy thing to do. I, th- I think for me, um, 
like honestly, there were there was a moment, you know, at DC where I found myself rewriting a a a, a series that I was working on, mm-hmm. and as I'm rewriting and penciling and having to redialogue, you know, entire batches of pages. Mm-hmm. And getting very, very frustrated because I knew that my name was not going to be on this book as the writer. Um, sure, I was still getting still getting paid, but it it was it was one of those. I have these moments in my life where something happens, and I go, "Oh crap! I forgot I could do that." Mm-hmm. And then I start picking it up again, and I start working at it. The same thing with inking, you know. The same thing with coloring my own work. You know, it, it became. It started as something that I did on the side, you know, that I put to the side, and then, you know, when you know after I left DC, and after I, you know, I was doing work for IDW, I was doing work for Archie. You know, doing work for all these smaller publishers. I was, you know, doing, you know, my own book, you know, Molly Danger. You know, I was getting involved mm-hmm. in all these other projects. I was doing, you know, I was going back and doing advertising work. I was doing, you know, D to C work for for advertising. And mm-hmm. you know, all of you know, all of these things, there was always something that came up. There was always a job that came up where I knew that if I I could outsource it, outsource that part of the job, I could outsource this coloring gig, but I know somebody who could flat these pages for me quickly. Let me take a shot at coloring it myself. You know? Right. Or, you know, for example, like during the, during the pandemic, uh, I wrote two short stories. For different for different anthologies, and I got other artists to work to to work from the short stories. But uh, for the for the first short story, the the artists involved lettered it themselves. For the second short story, I did the letter. I taught. I went in. I got like pulled out all the old like computer lettering books. Fired up Illustrator, you know, started looking mm-hmm. at like Nate Kakos's tutorials online <laughs> and, and letter this this eight page story. I don't call myself a letterer, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it gave me the impetus to start teaching myself how to use Illustrator properly, which is which is mm-hmm. another tool that I now have in my in my box. And, and another perfect example, uh, last year, I did a book with Nashville Public Radio, written by Alex Segura, Alex called The Mysterious Microbes. Yeah, and sure. I decided, now, keep in mind, I've had Clip Studio Paint sitting on my computer for years. <laughs> Always swore right. 
I'm going to learn how to use this program. Never touched it. Hmm. Um, partially because I still enjoy working on paper for the most part. But it was an opportunity. I took that as an opportunity to teach myself how to use Clip Studio Kit. Mm -hmm. And ended up drawing a, in a 39 page comic book entirely digitally. So now I have that, you know, tool in my arsenal as well. So yeah. it's always comes from a need and then a desire to want to learn. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And it's a, it's that, you know, that adage that you hear when you're young, like, you know, learn on somebody yes, else's dime. <laughs> you know, like it's the best way to do it because, okay, cool. Like, you know, you're just, you're going to put the, you're going to put the sweat equity in. You might as well do it and oh, get no, paid absolutely. to do it. And it's, it's also yeah. one of the things that I've always sworn to myself is I do not want to be, you know, the old guy left. You know, I don't want to be right. one of the people that as technology marches forward, you know, is still like, you know, sitting, you know, in his studio wondering why, you know, nobody's nobody's answering his calls or this at this point, emails or tests or, you know, or whatever. Sure. Know? Well, I mean, at this point, they're wondering whether they're not getting the calls, but that's because they're, e they're someone's trying to email them, yes. but they're not looking. Um, <laughs> And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking, man. We like, you know, we saw these people, you know, and they're still out yeah. there, but you see these people and you're, yeah, it's a, it's, you know, it's like the, it's like the Rolling Stones when, you know, when you're a kid and every, you know, and there was this sort of like, well, they'll, you know, no one's going to be a rock and roller at the right, age of 40, right, right. you know, and then you're like, or 50 <laughs> or 60 yeah, but, or 70. As you know, we creep up in age. Yeah, yeah. We go from being, you know, the angry young men to being the tired old mm -hmm. <laughs> ourselves. Right, the, the, the angry, angry old, old men. Yeah, <laughs> more well, tired than angry usually, but definitely, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. definitely there. But you know, at the at the same time, you, you have to have a willingness to want to explore new things as well. Sure. Because, you know, I know plenty of people. My mother-in-law is a perfect example of this. My mother-in-law is 78 years old and runs an organization in France that teaches music to autistic students. My mother-in-law has the French Legion of Honor Medal for, for this. She started this organization when she mm. was like in her early 60s just okay. from the ground up created this entire system and like she just got honored like just past week by the french government again this is like her third medal from the, from the french government <laughs> like, exactly. highly decorated but, highly but decorated she, but francoise is one of the sharpest people that you will ever talk to and you know she's not like one of these people like Ask her to do something on the computer. She's good. You know, she's uh, firing off emails, yeah. going to conferences, doing all this stuff, organizing all this stuff. You, there has to be a willingness to learn. There has to be a willingness to want to do things. I, I 
I want to maintain that coolness in my life in general. Yeah. Yeah. Well, embracing the embracing discomfort is a big part of that because you have to go, you have to be uncomfortable to get comfortable. Like that's the only way there is. I mean, our ancestors were out in the cold (laughs) weather freezing and then someone said, why don't we just go in the cave? You know, like, and then someone's like, Hey, why don't we just keep that fire that that lightning bolt hitting the tree? Just keep that going, you know, like, but like, and you know, a lot of people burn their hands in that process, but you end up getting to the point where, you know, we have to do this. And that is the creation process. The creation process is consciously saying, I'm going to be, I'm going to be uncomfortable. This is going to be miserable at the beginning. And then eventually you'll be able to sort of master the environment to one degree or another and then get some agency. Even then it's always work. I mean, I constantly will find myself sitting at the board, even after I lay a sequence out and just be like, okay, you thought of this idiot. How are you going to do it? Like, how are you you going to make this happen? You can make, you can do this. Just how, like, how are you, how are you going Mm -hmm. to, make this work like <laughs> well and it's also those you're talking about the tools in the toolbox you know i much like you have had to have quite a wide range of you know work endeavors to keep the lights on and there's this big old toolbox full of stuff but the variety the work is so various that i don't use right. all those tools right. all the time so i find myself go, sitting down on a project going okay, I said I would do this and I've done this kind of stuff before, but it's been years. And now I got to figure out how to do this oh, yeah. thing again. Oh, yeah. there, and there's always, yeah. you know, there, there's always that like, you know, that initial, like, you know, for like, for me, there's always like the first hour of just like, okay, look, you know how to fold a nib. You've, <laughs> you've done this. you 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 you've been inking with a brush since you were 18 years old you know how to do these things just because all you've been doing is penciling for the last like six weeks like get it together man get it (laughs) (laughs) well it it it, it, there is no command z with that brush so we have to it's it's hysterical because uh you know yeah, I teach also, I teach at the School of Visual Arts now. And, uh, nice. you know, working with, you know, soft, you know, sophomore cartoon majors and, you know, they're, I, I, I recognize like all of like the, the fried wiring in their brain <laughs> from uh-huh. when I was in school. Like at that moment, like I had this one young lady who is, you know, she's also taking, you know, Nelson DeCastro's inking class at SBA. And, sure. like, I've seen, like, marked improvement in her inking work over the last year. But we're, like, sitting down. I'm, like, trying to, you know, explain, like, thick and thin and, like, you know, being careful about hatching and not wanting to go too heavy on things. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that's come out of that experience so far is that, it's forced me to think about my own work 
and how I present my own work yeah. as well, which is not somebody you know. I forgot who it was. It was somebody who was warning me that that would have that would be the case. That's like, yeah, you're going to start really mm-hmm. thinking about how you how you work because you need to be able to explain it to them. And it's, yeah, it's the process, yeah. right? Because you have these people with very large <laughs> eyes sitting in a room looking at you as if you might have this answer to something that they right. don't know. Absolutely. And even though they well, know everything. <laughs> yeah. And occasionally having to talk them off the ledge. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that it's I mean it that that discovery of having to look at how you think your way through a problem and then to be able to convey that to another person is i mean there there are things that i keep saying to people to do like i remember remember in school they would say hey take right. painting classes i don't want to paint i want to draw comic books and they were like yeah but you'll be a you'll better, be better. Yes. drawer if exactly. you paint more you know and i go okay i need to do it but you know i, I talk to people who you know artists i'm like hey mm-hmm. try to write try to write try to write and then if they're the people who've already done the writing part i go okay great write something oh, yeah. for somebody else don't write it just for you write a script for someone else because you know the artist method of writing typically is like mm. thumbnail convert that into right. you know paid you know you know script but you can't do that for somebody else you have to let them come up with the whole thing so you need to give them that script oh, yeah. guideline the way i got around that for myself was actually even for for myself i always write a full script and yeah it also gives me the opportunity uh, to yell at the the writer who came up with it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. It's just like because I'll I'll finish a script and then I'll turn around like six weeks later when it's time to sit down and start laying it out. It's like, okay, why did I do this again? Like, why did where? That yeah, exactly. son of a bitch. MF, like really just. Yeah. Oh no, writers were the hor- were the oh, yeah. horriblest people in the world. We're out to ruin everyone's day. Yeah. Was was um Molly Danger the first sort of project you took on uh, as a writer? It wasn't the first project that I took on as a writer, but it was the first uh project that I that I decided that I was going to shepherd completely myself. Um, okay. Because I had done some writing like back in the day. Obviously, like the like everybody like everybody else, um, you know, I you know had to write scripts for samples, but I couldn't find scripts for samples. But then I was also like, mm-hmm. you know, I was also taking playwriting, and I was also trying to be a screenwriter at one point, which was how I ended up in California for a bit, uh, working at Sony. Um, but you know, I'd also like I like I said earlier, like I I had a copywriting background, you know, uh working in advertising and a marketing back background. So I you know, was used to I was it's not the same thing as writing prose, obviously, or writing, you know, a screenplay or writing a script. But, you know, when you have to come up with PR copy, you're trying to sell this product or this service to somebody. And you've got mm-hmm. to be goddamn convincing, right? 
you know, in yeah. written, the written form. So I've always found that those things really helped my writing along. But I always did like little bits of writing here and there. But Molly was the first time where I had said to, I literally said to myself, you have all of these ideas. And keep in mind that Molly Danger, before I even began working on the book, had been in various forms for about a decade before that. Mm -hmm. um, sure. And I had been writing little things here and there along the way. Did, you know, a little bit of writing while I was at DC. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it was the first opportunity that I had to just take all of these different ideas that I had, not just about like superheroes and comics and, you know, wanting to do something in a Bond Besame format, but also I'm very, very fascinated by the idea of celebrity. And I'm fascinated by mm -hmm. the, the cult of personality that we build up around celebrities. And I try sure. to incorporate that idea into it as well. Be, you know, with Molly being sort of the, the centerpiece of this small upstate New York town that has built its entire industry and around mm -hmm. her presence at this point. And they're sort of forced to contend with the you know the actions of her and her villains and mm -hmm. you know, the the whole idea sort of stems back to when i was a kid and you know i used to do a little bit of acting when i was a, when i was a kid and looking at child stars just everything is, you know, the, the, the whole celebrity yeah. aspect. Uh, one of the things that, you know, I hope I get the chance to explore because I will be bringing Molly back at some point um, is, you know, having to deal with the ramifications of having an actual superhero in your town. Um, sure. Beyond the 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 danger posed, but there's mm -hmm. a financial toll. There's a governmental toll. There's yeah. you know, you know, there's the the I we kind of I kind of touched on it a little bit in the first book, the idea that you know her team Dart is basically a private army. You know, giving mm -hmm. carte blanche to, yeah. to operate within the city limits. So I want to explore that idea a little bit more and exactly what that relationship with the city entails and why they put up with yeah. and her antics. There's an interesting thing that you that you did in the book, which runs counter to the the cult of personality danger that we have in celebrity, which is if people cease saying no to you, you lose mm -hmm. your sense of boundaries. So when we see celebrities behaving poorly, 
you know, in, in, in the public eye, it is because no one has said right. no to these people. And, you know, it is an unfortunate thing because the end result causes these terrible demises of people who, you know, we love, you know, deeply, but no one, right. no one was there to say no. And you do have sort of a governance in her, <laughs> you know, set up to, to like, you know, hey, no, you yes. can't go out. No, you can't do this. Now, that's not to say that it no. is 100% effective. <laughs> it isn't. But the idea is that they somebody was cognizant enough in that respect, i.e. you being the writer, but somebody was cognizant enough in this world to say, we, we just can't just let her have everything she wants because she'll just yes, kill everything exactly. eventually, you know, which is end result. Of oh, no, madness. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The, that really came from the, the, the fact that even within the story, I mean, Molly is still emotionally a child, even mm -hmm. with all of her experience. And I know from my own kid that my kid tends to lie about dumb things. That they don't need <laughs> to lie about. And, right. you know, that's just, it's a defense mechanism with kids. You know, yeah. they don't want to get in trouble. So they, they'll occasionally just blurt something out. And it's dumb. And you catch, you catch it. But I wanted to set up that idea between Molly and Holder where there's this sort of reluctant holder has sort of become this reluctant mother figure. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's not a position that she wants to be in. It's not a position that she ever expected herself to be in. You know, again, that's something else that I, I want to be able to flesh out at, at some point. And I think sure. I will definitely get the chance to. Um, it's 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 a it's a dynamic and it's it's an interesting dynamic because then you introduce Austin Briggs who is mm -hmm. whose entire reason for being at Dart is completely selfish and completely self serving. Mm -hmm. Um not malicious. But he's that, he's the fun uncle. You know? <laughs> sure. It's, it, Who doesn't clean it, up at, exactly. after everything's been done. Exactly. Yeah. So Molly knows how to manipulate fun uncle in a way to be, that she can't mm -hmm. manipulate mom. And, you know, so yep. there's that dynamic as well. And, you know, it, it was, you know, it was important to me. And I think, you know, having had the the opportunities that that I've had creatively to work with the people that I've worked with, you know, I've I've worked with you know Sterling Gates, I've worked with Grant Morrison, I've worked with Mark Wade, I've worked with Greg Rucka, I've worked with you know Alex Simmons, I've worked with some of the best writers possible. And I have yeah. learned so much from 
all of them about not just how to craft a story, but how to tell an emotionally evocative story. And being able to to pull that emotional idea, which is something that kids see from one angle and adults see from another angle. Like kids see the adults mm-hmm. sort of, you know, being mean to Molly and not letting letting her have friends. Adults going, right. Oh, I get it. It's actually dangerous. Yeah, this is actually yeah. a dangerous situation that we're dealing with. Yeah. Well, the 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 beautiful thing, and we've seen you know, we see it time and time again. You know, certainly in comics, is this playing with archetypes and tropes, and how do you, you know how do you reinterpolate this scenario? You know, so we right, have the right. Homelander version, mm-hmm. we've got the Hellboy version. You know, Hellboy is the same sort of scenario. We've got a very powerful, otherworldly character who grows up in the care a of a person in a, you know in an organization yeah, right right but a very but mm-hmm. a very different kind of approach while maybe on sort of like if you were checking boxes you're like well these things are all it's the same story yeah. right and you're like it's not like you can take this thing and you can mold it in a way that is going to give the reader a completely mm-hmm. different experience and an absolutely you know oh, yeah, unique absolutely. I payoff. Think if you if you wanted to, if to make the com- the comparison between those three characters, for example, so in Hellboy, mm-hmm. you know, Hellboy is sort of accepted. You know, this is who I am. I can't really change it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm never going to be human. It's just not. It's just not possible. I'm never going to be normal. I'm never not going to be a giant demon. So I might as well. Mm-hmm just kind of run with it. And I think that's one of the things that really makes, you know, Hellboy work as a character is this is that more of a blue collar aspect to Hellboy that's always been written into written into the character. Not like excessive well, you know, it's it's not like Wolverine excessive where he's like, you know, drinking and sleeping around and, you know, all of that stuff or super super violent. Mm-hmm. You know. Whereas Homelander is that cult of personality that, you know, it run wild, you know, and people trying to rein him in after the fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, the thing about Hellboy is that he is aware that he has a, a role and a significance that is not right. yet completely revealed no, absolutely. to anyone. So it isn't this sort of like, hey, it's like, hey, one day you're going to be really important. So we need you to be, we need you to stick around, you know, like, and if he's, ra- if you're raised well, you're going to have, you're going to raise a good child who's going to right. stand up at the time that the, you know, they're there. Nobody said to Homelander, hey, you're going to do great things. You know, Homelander was yeah. raised by wolves. In a, in a situation where people are trying to benefit from his his existence, and those are the lessons he learned, and the result is well, I think not the, so pretty. The thing that that binds you know our three characters is there's an underlying layer of loneliness that runs through them mm. as a, as a 
spread. And I, mm-hmm. and I think that's where there, there's definitely a similarity. I, I, you know, my, when I describe Molly to people, I say she's the most popular girl in the world, but she's also the loneliest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And her yeah. loneliness comes from the fact that she has watched everyone around her grow old and die. And she hasn't aged. She hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. You know, she doesn't mature. She's never going to fall in love. She's never going to get married. You know, she's essentially right. stuck as this 10-year-old girl. So it's sort of the the worst aspect of being Peter Pan. There are no lost boys around him. It's a cute around Molly. Yeah, sure. No, no Neverland. Never no lost boys. She lives in a museum. She's a walking museum piece to some people. She's an oddity. She's mm-hmm. you know she's a cash cow to yeah. others. You know, and then to other people, she's just a, right. a danger. You know, she's she, right yes, or a hero that. or whatever. Like. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, I mean, it's, I mean, and I think that's the best part when you get to, you get to come up with these characters and you can really kind of put them in, you know, scenarios and environments that challenge whatever their sense of self is, because that's when you get to Absolutely. really see who Absolutely. they are, you know, as a, you know, as the writer. So, yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think it's great. The beautiful thing is, is that what you're doing is sort of going back to that whole old school Marvel DC thing where you had to play those two companies kind of back and forth to try to sort of, you know, further your career, not just in a, in a dollar sense, but just a sort of a, right. a value sense. And I think now it's a matter of like, you need to create your own thing and you need to work for other companies on their projects. So, so because you might get a royalty check for doing a comic book at Marvel or DC. Yeah. You might. Um, yeah. That's it. You know, you don't own anything. You have in this business is, you know, creation, like putting yeah. your own characters out there. And, yep. You know, something may happen with them. Something may never happen with them. I mean, you know, it's a, it's, it's a crapshoot. Sure. But at the same time, I cannot at this stage in my life, Solely be a, a shark swimming in other people's waters, you know, to, to use a very mm-hmm. bad metaphor. But you know, you're a shark. You know, you stop swimming, you sink, you drown. Um, yep. And like I was saying before, you know, I everything that I have gotten to do, you know, especially like the last, like eight or nine years between, you know, working with Tom Pyre and working with Scott Snyder, working with Kwanzaa Sajifo on three very distinct, but very cool projects and having a a very, a very large part in shaping and molding them and making them, I hope, unique to some, to some mm-hmm. extent, I mean, you know, it's hard to do. Like, you know, they say that every story has been told at least five times. <laughs> it's just how it's just how you tell yeah. how you tell the story that that's important. So I, you know, I'd like to think that you know, 
I'm trying to put my own spin on things, not just visually, but you know, as a storyteller, as a contributor to the the story, the ongoing narratives that we are creating for these particular characters, you know, and just mm -hmm. rolling and just having fun and you know, just you know, that's that's ultimately the thing that. You know, that's the thing that I want on my tombstone is, you know, he had fun. My wife says the thing that's going to end up on my tombstone is he put shorts on Supergirl. But <laughs> <laughs> that, that oh, just yeah. might be on your Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> um, you broke into the business and, you know, the the last method, which was yeah draw samples show samples to editors whether that's right. mailing or physically showing to them and you had the luxury of being in new york city which as a as did i so we it made the frequency a lot easier and there's there's a i kind of miss being able to do that i mean you know there was a time where going up to dc was my weekly pilgrimage it was my excuse to like get out of the house like mm -hmm. you know take a proper shower and right like, you know, go and be visible and, you know, impressive and like hang out in the city a little bit. <laughs> I live six blocks. Like it was a six yeah, block no, walk used, to DC yeah. for me. Yeah, no, from here it was like a straight like 40 minute train ride and, you know, pop in an audio book or read yeah. a comic or whatever and you know, take the train in Manhattan. But um, yeah, I, I, I kind of missed that. But I didn't mean to interrupt you. You were, you were saying. No, no, no. Listen, I, I, I like reminiscing. Um, you're, you know, you're helping mold and shape the minds and creative spirits of, you know, the next generation. How do you, how do you frame it for them? Because your experience is, doesn't exist anymore. Like, it would be a rarity if somebody like could recreate that pathway of getting into the business because right. they just won't let you in the door anymore. So how do you, how do you, like, how do you look at the, how do you say to them, like, all right, here's what you need to do, or here, you know, how do you do, or you let them sort of say, Hey, here's what I want to do. And then you go, okay, well, well let's figure this I out. I honestly feel like they have an advantage in a, in a way because mm. social media has made it, much more possible for them to get in contact directly with editors and just in terms mm -hmm. of sheer visibility i look at somebody like gabriel piccolo who who basically put up a full illustration every day for an entire year on his twitter page and gathered like hundreds of thousands of followers and that got him attention from DC, and I think he's like working on mm -hmm. his like fourth or fifth Teen Titans like DC Zoom graphic novel right now. Like, yeah, there there are cool. opportunities. I tell them all the time there are opportunities. I mean, you know, you have the ability to you know get to know some of these editors on a much more personal level as well because, mm -hmm. of it. and it doesn't discount like having you know the opportunity to meet people face to face at like conventions for example because i always say yeah if you can get out to a convention go to a convention 
you know, there's still companies that do like yeah. face-to-face portfolio reviews. Um, but yeah, that you know the the platforms that they have, whether it's like Tumblr or Substack or Instagram or even Twitter or uh, DeviantArt is still around. What's the other ArtStation? Is the other one? Yeah. That, that's yeah, that's still around. around yeah. So there are portfolio sites. You you know, it's not that expensive to have your own website to host your own website. Ultimately, mm-hmm. I mean, it's you know, it's an expense, but you know, it's it's not as expensive as it used to be. Um, and, it, sure. and a lot of it really is about visibility and creating a public presence for yourself. Uh, and that's the thing mm-hmm. that I try to encourage my students to do is that. The, just make yourself visible and give yourself a, uh, create a platform for yourself, public. Yeah. Not be, yeah. you know, a, a, an a-hole about it, but definitely, like, don't be me. Right. I, you know, I, I'm, you know, I am angry and political and, you know, I, and I know, but, but I, and I also know that that's like half the reason, like half of my Twitter followers follow me is just to see me rant about politics <laughs> right <laughs> yeah the lens that they're viewing life through yep. is through this social Absolutely. media lens by and large and i would think it would be very hard to disconnect that personal experience of social media with a professional experience That's on true. social media because <laughs> you know you, typically they probably would have this the personal experience many years before they would try to make it a Mm -hmm. professional um, platform. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I think, and I, I like hearing you say that they have a greater advantage because I think that's really cool in the sense that this is a, it's a, because listen, it is a business and you got to be your own business person or run your own successful art person career. And so the platform is the thing and it's not and it's not specifically like hey i've got 200,000 followers or 30,000 followers i don't think that's it i think you can have 200 followers you could have a thousand followers and be really successful in the thing that you're doing because oh, no, it's absolutely. really just trying to find and an I audience think that the the visibility aspect really helps as well because it's not like you know it's not like the old days you know i literally like back in the 90s you know, spent a good six months every week doing a new set of samples and then sending them out as as many <laughs> editors as I could, as I could, just to pray, just sure. to hope that either somebody would you know call me or at the very least like write me mm-hmm. and tell me you know if they weren't going to hire me what it was that I was doing wrong and if there was an opportunity. To, to to change it and it did work eventually um yeah yeah well i, I was just thinking about like what we were talking yeah. about earlier when i first met you at marvel like but like my model was go in and talk to i mean let's be mm-hmm. honest assistant editor x wasn't it editor x it was assistant editor x and i would go in and then i would just right. be free range at that point i'm inside and I would just go from office to office, introduce myself. If I haven't already introduced myself, mm-hmm. I would hand them copies of stuff. It was just oh, this yeah. 
go through oh, yeah. the whole oh, floor yeah. no, every single time. Um, <laughs> I could I could say this now because I think the statute of limitations is over. Um, no, but I mean this was after <laughs> like I'd been working at DC for for a while, you know, and so around the holidays, I would come to the offices bearing booze. I I, I brought there you either go. wine or hard liquor, and I gave everybody. So smart. I, I went from office to office. And gave everybody a joint, <laughs> and I did this for it, yeah. it was very effective. I did this for a few years, you know. Actually, it's, it's a, uh, I'm sure the story is that apparently uh, Dan DiDio, when he was still at DC, <laughs> when uh, had to say something to uh, Liz Garland, who was a editor there at the time, and the first thing she did was she opened her desk drawer, pulled out a bottle of absolute that I had given her for Christmas. Crack to crack the bottle to okay, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love it, dude. I love it. So it's different, you know. That's that's the that's the old yeah. school sort of like yes. you know, that's the old school sort of you know, Glengarry Glenn Ross kind of you know, like you know, hey, mm-hmm. what's a set of steak knives, you know, kind of kind of thing, you know, it's like I'm trying to make people yeah. remember you, but you know, again, going back to the availability of social media and the ability to create a presence for yourself, a public presence for yourself. Um, I think, mm-hmm. you know, I think of somebody like you know Gail Simone, for example. Like, if it wasn't for sure her articles, like. You know, she would not have gotten noticed, but I think part of the reason why she got it, got noticed is because what she was writing wasn't just like poignant. It was funny, too. And people paid attention to it. And she mm-hmm. had a presence on social media before she really got the opportunity to start writing professionally. So, you know, there's, you know, it's kind of the same thing. If you can, if you can carve a presence for yourself, you know. And, you know, whatever it is, like, and be positive. You don't have to be like, you know, you don't have to suck up to people. Mm-hmm. I've never, I, I, I've honestly never found that yeah, right. to be an effective way of getting work. You just have to be yourself and, no. and be honest about who you are and what you want to do and, you know, why you're contacting this particular person. You know, it's like, listen, I don't mm-hmm. want to, you know, I don't want to beat around the bush. I am looking for work. Would you mind if I sent you a link to my webpage? Would you mind taking a look at some of my work? Because even if they don't mm-hmm. have, and I say this to my students all the time, even if they don't have work for you immediately, you know, you're gonna you're putting that bug in their mind. You know, mm-hmm. um, one of the reasons why uh, back in '99 I got hired to do New Warriors was because Greg Sheagle, who was an assistant editor of at uh, Marvel at the time, I mean, he was uh, Bobby Chase's assistant editor, had held on to a mm-hmm. uh, sample package of Nightwing pencils that I had drawn like, mm. maybe like a year or two before and held on sure. to them. And then when they were looking for a penciler for mm-hmm. New Warriors, he just pulled them out of the drawer. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I was I was in my studio, um, and the phone rang, and it was the editor for, I guess it was Everless Handling Deathstroke at the time, and they're like, hey. And they were like, we'd love, love to talk to you about penciling the book. Now, this is a character in a book right. I would love to have penciled regardless. And I had just finished some samples up and I was talking to the editor. I'm like, oh, cool. I'm glad you got the, you like this, the, uh, the Deathstroke samples I did. And the editor is like, oh, I haven't seen those. I'm looking at whatever it was. And it was, a you know, from right. a, a law, at least a year before. And I was like, mm. I could be over in 15 minutes right. because I lived only six blocks away. So I grabbed my, my book ran out the door and went over there and got a handshake nice. deal to, you know, nice. to do the book. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, and I don't know how that works now because, you know, it seems kind of hard to bookmark a specific drawing right. in a Instagram feed, oh, no, but they, I'm they, sure people they, have they, figured they it out. Definitely, there's a system for it from, from what I've been told. Going back to what we haven't really focused on. It is that face-to-face -face contact that is really going to put you in rarefied company, if you can make a contact online, right. then be at a convention and say, oh, hey, blah, 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 I'm so-and-so. And I really, I really, you know, right. thank you for liking the things I put up there. It's been, meant a ton to me. And I've got Absolutely. some new samples. I'd love to show you some work. And that's when they go, yeah. hit me with this. Let me see. Absolutely. Absolutely. You want, you want to hire somebody who's going to be easy to easy to work with you know and you know i mean talent will lead you a long way but you know sure we've all worked with just complete a-holes and you know it doesn't matter how talented yeah. they are you know if they're just going to make the, the experience miserable for everybody it's just not worth it you know? okay. uh I'm going to give you a, a quick little story here. I was talking with a guy, an ad guy last week, and we were talking and he's like, yeah, I was working in a place and this, the, you know, we, I had to lay off some people and this guy came, you know, a guy who was laying off was right. really angry about the whole thing. And he said, well, he's like, he's like, what do you want? You want someone who's, who you can get along with, or do you want someone who's talented? And the guy just paused for like a second. He goes, <laughs> both. I want both. Yeah. So, What's going on in the future for you? Let's, uh, let's okay. do some so, little, little um, promo here. Uh, the, 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 the last issue, penciling the last issue of Deadly Datsun Forever Machine, which is currently on Comixology and will be out from Dark Horse uh, later this year. And it's me, it's me Soto, Scott cool. Snyder, Tom Napolitano, um, and just having a blast with that. And then uh, Tom, Pyre, and I are doing a two-issue Raw Earth story because it's the fifth anniversary of Ahoy Comics and the fifth anniversary of the Raw cool. Earth. And I'm going to start working on that in like the next month or so. And I've already got the script, and it's funny. It's so funny. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, you know, just I'm doing covers and you know, just you know, just doing my thing, and then you know, the fall we'll see, we'll see what happens. You know, there's a couple of there's you know a couple of different things that are yeah. sort of like floating, you know, like it's, either one or the other is going to happen first. So <laughs> you know, it's just trying to figure out what's going to happen first. So um, aside from New York Comic Con, any shows you're planning this year? Oh yeah, uh, was 
if you're New York local, I am I'm at the Big Apple Con this month. I'm doing uh Terrific Con in Connecticut in July. I'm doing Superman cool. Celebration. I'm doing uh Heroes Con in in Charlotte. Yeah, that's that's actually Oh, oh awesome. okay. That's actually gonna be my first bat time back at Heroes yeah. Con in probably like six years, like six or seven years. So yeah, so hmm. I'm looking forward to that. Cool. And then uh, doing a couple of shows in the fall. I'm doing New York and Baltimore and then uh, Twin Cities Con in November. And then, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Uh, that's a good number. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the rest of my time is, you know, taken up by work, school, and French classes. So. <laughs> <laughs> and the family. The family, obviously. You know. Well, you, listen. Yeah. Yeah, well, I we'll we'll, yes. we'll move the family part to the front <laughs> of that list, you know, in editing. Yeah, that'd be perfect. Um, <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, I'll I'll definitely see you at Heroes. Oh, cool. Jamal, man, great. This was fantastic. I'm yeah. so glad that we uh, were able to do this. Oh yeah, thanks thanks for having me, Alex. I really appreciate it, man. It was fun. It was fun. <laughs> All right, my friend. I will talk to you soon. Thank you for joining me. All right, see you. All right, man.